Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us another day, another day that you've made, a day that is full of blessing, a day that is full of purpose, a day that we know will be filled with your, your providence, God. We ask that whatever you bring our way, that you would help us and equip us by your Spirit to deal with it in a way that pleases you and honors you, that, that glorifies you. Even now, God, as we listen to the preaching of your Word and as I preach your Word, God, I ask you would help me to be faithful and to say things that are bound by your book and and that would be helpful for everyone who's here with us today. God, I pray for the hearts and the ears that will receive your word now. And God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word, light up your word, help us to see that which we would otherwise not see, and understand that which we would not understand apart from you. So help us, God. Come and be with us and move us in this time as we with anticipation open up your Bible, studying the life of Joseph, looking, God, at how you work repentance in this, your family. So may that be good for us and good for our souls as you work your good repentance in your people. And we do pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So Joseph has been on quite the journey so far. We started reading about him when he was 17 years old and he was the favored son and hated brother. Dad loved him, loved him more than he loved his other sons. This caused his brothers to, to hate him, to be covetous, to be jealous. Didn't want to have anything to do with their brother, it got to the point he was so hated by them, it got to the point they threw him into a pit. They were ready to kill him. They were ready to leave him for dead if they weren't talked out of that sin, for maybe you could call it a lesser sin by one of their brothers. And that was, hey, here's a way for us to get rid of our brother and make a profit. Here come some Ishmaelite traders on their way to Egypt. Why don't we see if we can sell our brother into slavery. It was a grievous sin. Sold Joseph into slavery. He became a head slave. He was in Potiphar's house. But then he ends up, when you think things are turning around and looking better, I wonder if you felt like that before. I think we've turned the corner. Things are looking up. Oh, but you didn't see that big hole in front of you. He's wrongly convicted of a crime. He's thrown in prison. While he's in prison, he actually becomes head prisoner. And then through a series of events that God orchestrates and puts together, he ends up as what you might call second in command over the entire land of Egypt. He does this for two reasons. or He gets that for two reasons. One is Pharaoh's got a dream and none of his magicians, none of the, his divinators can... Tell him what the dream means. Joseph, of course, knows God, the giver of dreams. And Joseph's able to interpret the dream, impresses Pharaoh. And then 
Joseph proves himself to be a profound administrator. And so he ends up being put in a position by Pharaoh to administrate his entire kingdom. And Joseph becomes, we're in the middle of that right now, the Savior of the ancient Near East. So, a historical figure um, and a biblical figure, but the story is not over. The story is not over. Sometimes the story of Joseph is read or, or even preached like chapter 41 is the end. And then everything else is just sort of uh, uh, after the story. But the truth is the story is, is not over. And this, chapter 41, this big promotion is actually not the payoff that some might think it is. Oh, here it is. Joseph has worked hard. He's been faithful. He hasn't sinned. His life's been a mess up until this point. But finally, here's the payoff. I mean, he's rich. He's wealthy. He's given a beautiful wife. He's got a great job. People are bowing down to him. He's got everything that a man could possibly want. But the truth is, and I think Joseph knows this, and I think Joseph feels this, he's in the wrong nation. He's in the wrong land. He's in the wrong house. He's under the wrong king. He has the wrong wife. This is not what Joseph wants. Joseph wants to go home. Joseph wants to see his dad again. Joseph, as we'll see, wants to be reconciled to his family. He's still in servitude. He's still a slave. He's just in the palace instead of the pit. But he can't go anywhere. He's been tied down. And he's still enslaved to Pharaoh. So that's where we pick up our story. And here's what the next few weeks are going to be about in a nutshell. Over the next few chapters, we're going to talk about repentance and how we get there. Repentance and how we get there. Today we see the beginning of how God is going to bring these wicked brothers who sold their brother, their kid brother, into slavery. How God is going to bring these hardened men to repentance. How He's going to soften their hearts. And that's very applicable because we all need to repent. Every one of us. There's Repentance unto life, and there's the repentance of life. Repentance unto life is this very first initial repentance that if you're a Christian, all of you did. Repentance means turning. And there came a moment in your life, Christian, when you turned for the first time, when you turned from the world and your flesh and Satan and sin and your own ways, which you had gone your whole life, your indifference to God, and you had turned from that and you turned to God through Jesus Christ. And we call that faith and repentance. And you committed, didn't you, to turn away from that life, to deny yourself that life, to not try to earn your way into heaven, to not try to work your way into heaven, to not live for your pleasure but God's pleasure, to not go your way but God's way. You submitted to Him. You turned to Him in faith and repentance. That was repentance unto life. But then there's the repentance of life. Because all of you Christians know repentance isn't a one-time thing. Oh, 
Glad I got that over with. Not going to have to do that again. That was tough. Have you talked to a Christian who thought repentance was a one-time deal? It's not. There's the repentance of life. Martin Luther went so far as to say, all of life is the life of repentance. You get up in the morning and you repent. You eat your lunch and you repent. You eat your dinner, you repent. You put your head on your pillow and you repent. What do you do? You turn. You turn again. You turn again. You turn again. God, as long as I'm in this world, as long as I'm in this body, I'm pulled in different directions. God, help me again to turn from sin and to You. But how do we get there? How do we get there? How will these brothers get there? That'd be a good story, wouldn't it? These are some pretty sick brothers. How will they be brought to repentance? Well, let's find out. We're going to see God begin that process today. If you've got your Bible open up to Genesis chapter 42, let's look at the, the first five verses. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Just a few words and phrases to look at in those first five verses. The first is this phrase. Jacob sends his boys to Egypt. Why? That we may live and not die. That we may live and not die. That's a packed statement. You know your whole Bible is about that. Your whole Bible is how we may live and not die. The great question your Bible answers is, how can I live and not die? How can I live and not be eternally alienated from a God I have so greatly offended? How is there hope for me? How can I be with Him forever? That's the question your Bible answers. And as you'll see in the life of Jacob and Joseph and his other sons, Salvation's going to come. Physical salvation. Material salvation. They're dying. There's a famine. They've got no resources. And God's going to save them. But the more important famine is the spiritual famine. And the more important salvation is the spiritual salvation. And that's what's going on in this story. God is saving these brothers. Not just physically. Saving them spiritually. The second thing to note in verse 1 is when Jacob gives this instruction to his boys, he has to ask them a question. Why do you look at one another? Don't just stand there. That's what he's saying. What did I say? Why are you all looking at one another? Sinclair Ferguson calls them guilt words. 
They are words or phrases that, when heard, spark guilt. Do you have guilt words? Words or places or dates that take us back to something we regret deeply. I have these. Do you have these? There's a word you can hear. There's a phrase you can hear. There's a place you can drive by. There's a date on the calendar. And that date, that place, those words have baggage. And so when you drive by it, or that date comes, you, some of you, are reminded of things in your past that you regret deeply. And so when you hear those words, or you hear those phrases, they trigger our memories and then our consciences and remind us of past sin and failures. I just had a trigger guilt phrase this morning. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Now, as I'm preparing for this sermon, and I heard a phrase, and it took me back to something I regret deeply. You have words like that? Phrases like that? Places? Dates, maybe? I think the guilt word for these brothers is Egypt. The guilt word is Egypt. And I wouldn't be surprised if over the last 22 years, that's how many years have passed since they sold their brother to slave traders headed to Egypt. 22 years have gone by. And I wouldn't be surprised if over the last 22 years, these brothers had a stated or unstated understanding that we don't talk about Egypt. We don't bring up Egypt. Why? Because we sold our brother to slave traders, to Egypt. The worst act of betrayal. It reminds us of our betrayal. We want to stuff it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to deal with it. No one wants guilt. No one wants to feel guilt. We repel that. So, we don't want to hear these words or these phrases or think about certain things that are going to trigger up these memories. And what does Jacob do? He not only says the word Egypt, he tells his sons to go to Egypt and then they stand there and they just stare at one another. You see what's happening? Why are you standing there looking at one another? Because their dad is sending them to Egypt. And they're all reminded and without words, they exchange glances because they're pierced. Egypt would be the guilt word for them. And then Benjamin. We also hear of Benjamin here in these first five verses. Benjamin is the full brother of Joseph. Benjamin is the full brother of Joseph. Benjamin is the new favorite son of Jacob because Benjamin is the only living, as far as Jacob knows, son of his beloved Rachel. Remember, Jacob had four wives. He loved, he loved one wife more than any of the other wives. He was tricked by Laban to marry Leah, whom he did not want to marry. Leah was Rachel's ugly sister. So ugly that her dad had to trick Jacob into marrying her. Waited for Jacob to have too much to drink and it was late at night and all the lights were out and he couldn't see anything. And he brought in Leah. He consummated his relationship with Leah. 
Woke up the next morning, said, Laban, you, you dirtbag, where's Rachel? And Laban said, I'll tell you what, you can have Rachel, but you need to work 14 more years. How pretty was Rachel? Pretty, pretty. 14 years, gladly, I'll work for Rachel. Loved Rachel, his beloved wife. Deeply mourns her death. Do you remember when she died? She died when she was having Benjamin. Benjamin. So Joseph was the favored son. Now who's the favored son? Benjamin. That's very important. It's very important as we're looking to see, is this family repentant? Is this family transformed? Is this family changing? How's dad going to deal with this favorite son now? How are the brothers going to deal with this favorite son now? That's what we're invited to think about as we read those first five verses. Let's keep going. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. You, remember, you know what's happening here? You remember the dream that Joseph had back in chapter 37? He had a dream and he came down and told his brothers who hated him. I had a dream last night, two of them, and in both of them, crazy thing, you were bowing down before me. And they're like, we hate you and we're going to kill you. <laughs> we, just hate, we already hated you. Have you no self-awareness? We already hated you. And now you say that, you're done. What just happened? The dream has been fulfilled. His brothers are bowing down before him. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, and they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So one of the questions that's going to be answered as we read on is this. How will Joseph deal with his brothers who do not recognize him, but he recognizes them? How's he going to deal with this? The tension in our story is at an all-time high now. What is Joseph going to do with these brothers who sin so greatly against him? Verse 8. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, You are spies, and you have come to see the nakedness of the land. That doesn't mean they're looking for the nude beaches in Egypt. This means they're looking to find out where is Egypt vulnerable? Where is Egypt vulnerable? Okay, he's accusing them of being spies who are coming to find a weak spot in Egypt. Because Egypt is a place with all the resources now. He accuses them of this. Verse 10, they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Can you imagine Joseph maybe choking a little bit on that last statement? <laughs> We're all sons of one. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he's got to be thinking, well, that's about all you haven't been. <laughs> right, that's the subtext in his mind. Honest men? Honest men. These aren't honest men. At least they weren't. But we're not spies. This is what we do, right? 
we'll, 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 we'll talk about the few things that we're good at. We'll focus on the few areas where we don't sin, hoping that you'll stop sniffing. You'll leave us alone. Throw you a little bait. These are wicked boys. Verse 12, he said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So he throws them in prison for three days and tells them you're going to need to send one of your brothers home and bring this brother you're talking about. Then I'll know your story is true and I'll believe you. Otherwise, you're spies. Verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your younger brother to me. So he's changing the plan up a bit. Okay, instead of sending one, okay, leave one, and the rest of you go get this brother you talk about. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where someone was speaking in a language that they didn't think that you knew? Or maybe you were with someone who spoke in the language that they spoke in and they didn't know it? Isn't that a great moment? Especially when they're talking about you. Right? They're trying to sell you the car. Or, and here they are talking in a language. They don't, they don't think that you understand what they're saying. I've been with that guy before. And then all of a sudden, he responds to them in their language, the look on their face, that's priceless, right? That is that's good stuff. They don't think, they don't think that this Egyptian, right, Joseph, this Egyptian ruler can understand anything they're saying because he's maintained an interpreter between them to interpret the Egyptian to the Hebrew and vice versa. So they're talking in Hebrew they have no idea that Joseph understands every word that they say. It affects him. Verse 24, Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them and said, and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. And so they're going to set out on their journey now 250 miles, at least three weeks. So these next few chapters, we're going to cover months. Verse 26, Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. 
Here it is in the mouth of my sack. You think, well, what's, the, what's the big deal? It's a good deal. You got grain and you got to keep your money. But how would this look? How would this look? They went to Egypt with money to buy grain. And they're coming back home with grain and their money. So one thing this could look like is they stole. It looks like they stole the grain. You still have got all your money. What's the other thing this could look like? Can you think of another time these boys were headed back home with one less brother and a sack full of money? Where's Simeon? And why do you have all this money? Maybe they sold another brother into slavery. That's why they panic. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Verse 29, they're going to get home and fill that in. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. And in verse 35, As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Now this is very dramatic how Jacob is talking right now. This is what some of you might call a pity party. He's feeling sorry for himself. He's basically saying the whole world is out to get me. The whole world is against me. Nothing is going my way. No one loves me. This I know. My misfortunes tell me so. Let's get the violins out. Then Reuben said to his father, this is really strange. Reuben's got a deal. Here's Reuben's deal. Here's his proposal. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. That does not sound like a very good deal. <laughs> Jacob's saying, I want, I want my son back. You don't really sound like a protective father right now. I'll tell you what, Dad, I, I am a protective father. I know what you're feeling right now. I'll go. I'll make sure that Simeon comes back safely. It's all about the kids. I'll tell you what, if I don't, you can kill my two boys. <laughs> not much of a closer there. I don't know. I don't know if Reuben's just not that smart. I'm not sure what's going on. But he said... My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. Oh, thanks, Dad. (laughs) Did you hear what he just said? I mean, can you imagine being those brothers? 
You're not taking Benjamin. You see who, who's the favorite son now. You're not taking Benjamin because if you take Benjamin, I've got no children left. Can you imagine those ten brothers like, <laughs> there's a few right here. Dad? Thanks, Dad. Just You're not getting the world's greatest dad t-shirt this year. That's bad. You're the only, he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So here's a question. Why doesn't Joseph reveal himself now? Why is Joseph waiting? He recognizes these are his brothers. Why doesn't he reveal himself? What does he do? He speaks roughly to them. He throws them in prison for three days. He took Simeon and bound them, bound him before their eyes. And then he sends them on their way to retrieve Benjamin. Why is he waiting? Well, he must not be vindictive. Because if he was vindictive, this was about revenge and payback, we all know the moment that he would reveal himself. When they were getting up from bowing down to him. Ha! Ha! Guess what? What happened to that brother of yours? What was his name? Joseph? What'd you do? Did you sell him into slavery? Do you remember a dream that 17-year-old had? Can you? I'd love you to tell me about that dream. What happened in that dream? Did you bow down to him? Well, guess what? I'm Joseph. I mean, that would have been his moment, right? If he was vindictive. As well, though, if he was forgiving, and I think he was, he's going to prove that his heart was already forgiving toward his brothers. That he wanted to be reconciled to his brothers. He, in spite of all that's happened, he loves his brothers. Joseph is a godly, godly man. He was not vindictive. Remember, he's only one of three characters in your entire Bible of whom sin is never mentioned. Joseph, Daniel, and Jesus. That's a good list. He's a godly man. He's already forgiving toward his brothers. But then why not reveal himself to his brothers once they demonstrated regret? They did, didn't they? Verse 24. They seem sorrowful. They seem regretful. So once his brothers seem upset, why doesn't he reveal himself and embrace them? And the answer is this. Joseph is wise. And Joseph means to test the hearts of his brothers to see if they've really repented. Have they really changed? Because here's what Joseph knows. Joseph knows this. Your tears don't mean anything. Your tears don't mean anything. 
Because there's a difference. Paul talks about this when he writes to the Corinthians. There's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. There's a big difference. Everybody cries when they're caught. You don't have to love God to feel bad for getting caught. One repents and turns and weeps because they've dishonored God. And the other one cries and weeps because they're embarrassed. Because their reputation's going down the drain. Because the burden of accountability is more than they can stomach. Because the walls of their pride are crashing down. There's a difference, isn't there, between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And Joseph needs to figure out which it is for his brothers. You remember, there were, there were two people who betrayed Jesus the night before He was crucified. Do you remember that? There were two people that betrayed Him. Two very close friends that betrayed Him. And both of them wept. And for one it was a worldly sorrow, and for the other it was a godly sorrow. For Judas it was a worldly sorrow. Do not think when you hear Judas crying about it that he was repentant. He was not repentant. He felt sorry for himself. And he hung himself. But Peter's offense was almost as great, you could say. Three times he bold-faced, denied even knowing Jesus, how could he betray him like that just to save his own skin? How could he turn from him? How could he abandon him like that? And Peter wept just like Judas wept. But Peter's sorrow drove him to Christ, not away from Christ. He, Luke 3 talks about this, Peter bore fruit in keeping with repentance. That's nice that you feel bad, but everyone feels bad. That's, but that's nice. Let's hope now that that drives you to God. Now let's look for fruit in keeping with repentance. You will repent when two things. We're going to see God work this with the brothers and you'll see God work this in you. You will repent when number one, you acknowledge sin. That has to happen. You must acknowledge sin. And many when they are unrepentant, are simply unwilling to acknowledge sin. I didn't do it. It's two things. I didn't do it, and it's not that bad. No, you did do it, and it is that bad. So you need to acknowledge sin. But that's not all that's necessary for repentance. You will repent when, number one, you acknowledge sin, and then number two, you believe there is enough grace to pardon all your sins and to begin to bring about reconciliation. I think Judas may have acknowledged his sin. But do you know why he wasn't repentant? Because he didn't plea for the mercy and grace of God. He didn't know God. He didn't love God. And he didn't cry out to God. One of the things that hangs people up from repentance is, is they don't acknowledge their sin. The other is they'll get to the point where they acknowledge their sin, but then it just brings them to a point of total despair because they fail to realize that there is enough grace and pardon in Christ to be forgiven and washed clean. 
So Joseph's brothers are crying. They clearly seem rattled. Something is going on. They're talking about their guilt. They're being haunted. Did you hear that? They're being haunted by this memory of what they did to their brother. But is this worldly sorrow or is it godly sorrow? Because at the end of the day, there needs to be a lot more than tears. A lot more than tears. Repentance and how we get there. So through these next few chapters, we are going to see how God shines on darkened consciences and stirs them to repentance. Here's a definition of your conscience. The rational part of your soul that judges and evaluates all your thoughts, deeds, and words according to the light that it has. That's what your conscience is. Okay, inner voice, you've heard that, right? The little, little guys in your shoulders, that's bad, that's good, that's bad. What is it doing? Right, it's this part of your rational soul, your thinking soul that judges and evaluates everything that you think, every thought, everything that you say, and everything that you do according to the light that it has. George Washington called conscience that little sparkle of celestial fire. And one author calls the conscience the sundial of the soul. Here's what he meant by that. Your conscience is like a sundial for your soul. A sundial is great for telling time, but only if the sun is shining on it. Right? It does not work in darkness. So dads, if a young man would like to take your daughter out on a date, and he says, what time should I have her home? And you say 10 o'clock, and he says, no problem, I'll have her home at 10 o'clock, and he's got a sundial, that's no good. Because it's dark. So he may have a time-telling piece, but it's not going to work. And it's not going to work because there's no sun to shine on it. Well, your conscience is the same way. Your conscience judges and evaluates your will, but it needs the light of God's Word. It needs to be used in conjunction with God's Word where we learn what is good what is right, what is lovely, what is pure, what is honoring to God. And then your conscience either acquits you or condemns you. Every thought, every action, every word. It can be evil, the Bible tells us. It can be dull. It can be seared. It can be wrong. It can be bribed. It can be partial. It can be strong. It can be weak. But we need a good conscience. So how is God going to break through this dulled, hardened conscience of these brothers to bring repentance? And the answer is in what we see Joseph doing, right? He's taking his time. He's evaluating this. Robert Candlish, in his commentary on Genesis, he wrote that in his opinion, and I totally agree, that if Joseph were left to himself, he would have revealed his identity in, in a moment, but he was restrained by God who was using Joseph for the salvation of his brothers. 
Joseph, if we know Joseph well, and I think we do, Joseph would have been quick to say, it's me, I'm so glad to see you, as he will. I love you, it's okay, I forgive you, but he's restrained by God because God is using him to bring his brothers to salvation, to repentance. Listen to what Robert Candler said. It was the Lord that brought the dreams to his remembrance, and Joseph, I am persuaded, recognized the Lord in this. At once he perceives that this affair of his brethren coming to him is of the Lord. It is not a common occurrence. It is not mere casual coincidence. The Lord is here in this place and in this business, and therefore the Lord must regulate the whole and fix the time and manner of discovery. If he had been left to himself, Joseph would not have hesitated a moment. His is not a cold or crafty temperament. He is no maneuverer. He would have had all over within the first few minutes, but the Lord restrains him. He is, I doubt not, consciously in the Lord's hand, doing violence to his own nature to serve the Lord's purposes. And much of the interest and pathos of these scenes will be found to lie in the strong working of that nature under the control and guidance of the Lord. So for the rest of our time, let's answer this question. How does God break through these darkened consciences and stir these men to repentance? We don't see all of God's work in this chapter. We'll see more in chapters to come. But we see a lot. Specifically, three things. Three things. Three tools in the hands of God that He's using to bring these men to repentance. That He uses in His people to bring about repentance. So think about your life. Think about your life. Number one, first we read about the pain of physical or material wanting. This was the famine. Often God does this. And He's done this here. He puts this family in a very stressful situation. Physically and materially. There's a famine. And it's to point to the spiritual famine. The spiritual reality. God will do that. He will bring about disorder physically to cause you to look at the disorder spiritually. There's a problem and it's not just out here, it's in here. And so he brings this famine on Jacob and his family. Brings him into a desperate situation. A very stressful situation. These kinds of things begin to peel back the layers and expose what's underneath. Number two. We read about God's, through Joseph, harsh words and harsh treatment. We saw it twice pointed out by the author. Remember in the Hebrew text, anytime you see a phrase repeated in a short period of time, the author is saying, pay attention to this. Look at this. It would be like you typing up a document and and putting it in bold. That's what he's doing. And twice, way back in the beginning of chapter 42, we learned that and Joseph spoke roughly to his brothers. And then when the brothers give the account to Jacob and they tell him about what happened, what did they say again? The exact same phrase. He spoke roughly 
to us. One of the things that God does to break through hardened consciences, one of the things God does for those whom He loves to stir up repentance is He deals with them harshly. Some of you have been roughed up by God, haven't you? Been handed over to your sin. You've been allowed to feel painful consequences. He's directly brought consequences. Painful, isn't it? Through His Word, through the preaching of His Word, the Lord roughs us up. The Lord uses rough words, hard words. We reap what we sow, don't we? The Lord brings friction into our lives when we choose to go our own way. If He loves us. If He's not doing a Romans 1 handing over, He brings friction into our lives when we choose to go our own way. That's why it's important for every Christian to hear soft words and hard words. There's a time to be gentle and there's a time to be rough. There's a time to be harsh. Paul does that, you remember? You ever feel like Paul can't make up his mind in how he deals with people? It depends on the occasion. He loves the Thessalonians. You know, he writes them and says, listen, we came to you as a, we came to you with gentleness as a mother with nursing children. Oh, that's how, that's how I want to be confronted. That's it. Just come to me like I'm your baby. <laughs> and you're my mother. Gentle. Gentle is what we want. But he doesn't come to the Corinthians like that. So then I'm, I'm not coming to you like a gentle mother. Because I'm coming to you as your spiritual father. And I've got some hard, hard words for you. Gotta figure out what somebody needs as best we can. That's why Second Thessalonians five fourteen says, Encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, admonish the idle. And admonish means hard words. It means rough them up. So you gotta figure out are they faint hearted and they need encouragement? Are they weak and they need help? Or are they idle? And they need a kick in the pants. Or they need to be admonished. And then he says, Be patient with them all. God uses harsh words. Harsh words to break through to these boys. And let's remember, these boys could handle that. These were some hard men. Think about the stories we've read about these guys. When Joseph was just a boy, these men massacred an entire town. Their father blamed them for making him stink to the world around. Reuben slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Judah slept with his daughter-in-law and then tried to have her killed. And all of these men were complicit in the selling of Joseph into slavery. It's time for some hard words. So who are hard words for? Hard words are for hard men and women and hardened men and women. That's who hard words are for. If you're not hardened, great. If the words are getting through, great. If the consequences are doing their work, great. If the means of grace are bringing you to repentance, great. If they're not, what's left? Hard words. 
Hard words. Why? Because we don't love you? No, because we love you. That's the point. God disciplines the one whom He loves. This isn't punishment. This is discipline. It's good. Good and helpful hard words. But He didn't just give these brothers hard words and speak roughly to them. He handled them roughly. Didn't He? It wasn't just His words. It was His, his, his actions. In fact, I think in reading through this, that if you evaluate what Joseph did and how he handled these brothers harshly, it seems to me that he is reenacting exactly what they did for him. Right? The guilt words and the guilt places and the guilt dates. Trying to awaken them to their sin. He's repeating before them what looks to be the scene of them selling him into slavery 22 years before. Right? In at least a few ways. Remember, do you remember what Joseph was doing when he set out to find his brothers in Shechem? When they ended up finding him and selling him into slavery? What was he coming to do? He was coming to spy on them. And I'm sure their response was, you're a spy. And when his brothers show up before Joseph, what does he accuse him of? They hear their words. He accuses them of being spies. Then he throws his brothers into a pit. He throws his brothers in a pit like they threw him in a pit. And then he binds Simeon before their eyes. I don't know this, but I'm willing to bet that he had Simeon bound in the same way he was bound before his brothers. He's trying to reach their hearts. And then what does he do? He fills their packs with gold. And so they go home. Minus one brother with sacks full of jewels. When was the last time that happened? When they sold their brother for profit into slavery. James Boyce said, that is why we must never resent or resist the harsh treatment God sometimes gives out as we study His Word or hear it proclaimed from the pulpit. God hates sin. Therefore, the Word of God, which reflects His holy character, customarily exposes our sin and calls for repentance. Comfort? Yes. The Bible contains great comfort. But the comfort and the promises are for those who confess their sin, obey God, and pursue righteousness. We all need, don't we? We all need hard words spoken in love. Joseph loves his brothers. Remember verse 24? What did he have to do? He had to turn away and weep. There is great compassion and pity in Joseph. When God deals harshly with us, there is great compassion and pity behind what he's doing. We all need hard words spoken in love. Some of you have a really difficult time with that. Some of you have a hard time with that because you were pampered. No one ever spoke hard words to you. It just crushes you now. Oh, all I ever heard was how wonderful I am. I can't handle this. And criticism just wrecks you. And so you can't handle harsh words spoken in love. Others of you can't handle it because you were spoken harsh words, but they were not in love. And so you can't feel any love in it can't feel any compassion in it. 
you can't feel any pity in it. Well, we've got to work through that. But the answer is not no hard words. We need the hard words spoken in love. And then the third thing, the final thing, that God uses to break through these darkened consciences is solitude. In this case, physical imprisonment. God deals with us in solitude. For some of you I know, this is the exact reason you stay so busy. It's the very reason you're having so much noise constantly about you. Because you don't want to deal plainly with the Lord. And you don't want to deal plainly with your thoughts. You don't want to be moved to repentance. You keep things so busy around you. Because you know what happens in solitude. You know what happens when you're alone. A.W. Tozer said this, the idea of spiritual cultivation and exercise so dear to the saints of old has now no place in our total religious picture. It is too slow, too common. We now demand glamour and fast-flowing dramatic action. A generation of Christians reared among push buttons and automatic machines is impatient of slower and less direct methods of reaching their goals. We have been trying to apply machine age methods to our relations with God. We read our chapter, have our short devotions and rush away, hoping to make up for our deep inward bankruptcy by attending another gospel meeting or listening to another thrilling story told by a religious adventurer lately returned from afar. But friends, we need to escape and be with God. Or repentance may never come. Solitude. We have all different ways to do what we think are good things to tune out God. Some of you listen to so many sermons and so many podcasts and read so many tweets and read so many good Facebook posts and read so many blogs and download so many lectures and read so many articles and read so many books that I wonder if you ever actually meditate on what you're hearing. You know you're called to meditate on what you hear. You're called to think about what you hear. Not just deal with it on a shallow level and then move on to the next thing. Do you know you're also held accountable for everything you're called to do in God's Word? Are you really applying every single sermon you listen to in a week? Every word that you read in a week? Or is it Satan's great trick? I fear it is. I'm deeply concerned about this. I think one of his tricks today is to fill our minds with so much good that we never actually deal with anything. We never actually think about what we're reading. We never actually repent and turn from sin. We just numb out that voice by clicking into the next sermon. I don't know how you can handle 
more than reading your Bible every day, digesting one sermon, and maybe a book. And I really wonder if you're truly applying everything because you will be held accountable for it. And I wonder if you're really growing the way you could be growing or if it's just a surface growth because you're getting an inch deep everywhere and you never dig deeper. Friends, be careful. Solitude. Maybe the next time you want to fill that silence with a sermon or a song in your car even, maybe you should just deal with the Lord. And maybe you should ponder your sin and ponder His grace and meditate on Him. Solitude. God uses solitude in these men's life to bring about repentance. And I think it's working. I think we already see it working out in this chapter. Did you hear a couple of the things that we read about the reaction of the brothers? Verse 21 and 22, they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Do you hear the haunting that's there? That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. This is progress. They're connecting what's happening to their sin. They know it's connected. They're acknowledging their guilt. And then in verse 28, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them. It means they're hitting rock bottom. That's what that means. And they turned trembling to one another. This is repentance coming about, saying, what is this that God has done to us? It's the first time these brothers mention God. And they're seeing God working in their life to soften their hearts and bring them to repentance. And I wonder if there's anybody here today who is inwardly terrified because of unrepentant sin. And you've got monsters in your closet that you don't ever want to let out. Maybe it's been 22 years. Maybe it's been 22 months. Maybe it's been 22 hours. Will you deal plainly with God and with men? Or will God have to keep pushing? Grow harsher, perhaps. What will it take to bring us to repentance? I wonder if for some of you, this is why you can't have a spiritual conversation. I wonder if why for some of you, it's why you seem only capable of small talk. I wonder if it's why you can't talk about the Gospel. I wonder if it's why you're so quick to confess petty sin and never anything more. If you're going to repent, you not only need to acknowledge your sin, but you really have to believe there is enough grace in Christ to pardon you from your sin or you'll never repent. Just hear that. You won't ever repent. You're not delaying your repentance. You will never repent. Ever. 
in hell, you will not repent unless you believe now that there is enough grace in Christ to pardon you from your sin. Satan would like you to believe the blood of Christ is its not going to cover that. It'll cover this. Cover this. But not that. That's too great. You've done it too many times. You've broken too many promises. His blood won't reach. But His blood will reach. So you must, like Augustus Top Lady said, and rock of ages, foul to the fountain, fly. Foul to the fountain, fly. And remember, and I'll close with this verse, Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for loving us enough to bring hard words to our souls. We thank You for loving us enough to not leave us in our sin, but to redeem us and to save us and to save us again, sanctify us and to make promises to us and to fulfill those promises. You've been so good. We love You, God. For those needing to turn to You now, I pray that You would work in their hearts deeply, that they would turn to You. I pray for those who have been forgiven of much, they'd be willing to forgive much. Their hearts would be overwhelmed with gratitude at the grace You have poured out on them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.